My name is Rob Ockenkloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek to gain knowledge of the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by the Holocene Magazine. Our first issue is available for shipping now. You heard it right. It is now in stock and ready to go, shipping almost anywhere in the world. And anyone listening to this can use the code PODCAST to save 15% off the first issue. If you enjoy the first issue, please also consider pre-ordering the second issue, which will come out on March 15th of this upcoming year. Today, I am joined by none other than Sam Rubin. A graduate of Vassar College and the Presidio Graduate School, Sam Rubin is an accomplished innovator, entrepreneur, and a co-founder at Mighty Buildings, an Oakland-based construction technology company using 3D printing, new composite materials, and robotics to sustainably unlock productivity in construction. His passion and deep understanding of sustainability and compliance drew him to the vision of addressing the dual housing climate crisis by 3D printing sustainable homes. Sam has leveraged his experience working with organizations of all sizes across the public, private, and nonprofit sectors to help them improve their sustainability in terms of people, planet, and prosperity to guide Mighty Building certification and sustainability roadmaps. He has also led development of climate-related policy, including AB2446, the first bill in the country to begin addressing embodied carbon across the built environment. And... As normal, in some of my podcasts, we get into the weeds a bit, but I recommend everyone hold on and try to understand and expand their mindset on some of the ideas that we share. Without further ado, here's a conversation between myself and Sam Ribbon. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here, Rob. I start every single episode by asking the same question, which is what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Oh man. First thing I think about when I wake up in the morning, usually how much longer, like, can I go back to sleep? Like how much more <laughs> sleep can I get? Uh, and are you someone, uh, but that, I think that's probably cause I don't have a set sleep schedule really, cool. which I, I need to work on. Apparently that's good for you. Who knew? I actually, I actually don't believe that. So I was about to literally ask you if you had a set sleep schedule. So, <laughs> Like I, I argue with people all the time. It's happened on this podcast. It happens in real life about what works for sleep schedules. And I'm someone who travels so much between time zones that like, and I believe the body does know best. And some people will say things like, oh, the body never needs over X amount of hours. But like, there've been some times that I've been, you know, like, Depends on the body. Yeah, totally. Like I, I've been on some crazy races or expeditions where I've been up for three days and I go sleep for 14 hours. And that's like, my body needed it. Yep. Like, and so I, I, I think a good day always starts off when you wake up naturally. Um, and even if I don't sleep very long, my body wakes me up. I take that as a sign, like, Hey, it's, it's time to get up. Um, yeah, for my my problem is that I've got a really, really, really good internal alarm clock. Mm. Like if if my alarm wakes me up, it's a it's it's rare. Got it. Like usually I turn my alarm off before it even goes off, um, because I've I just my body has a really good internal clock and just knows. Like so, if I know I need I'm planning on being up at seven, I'll probably be awake at six fifty. That's like I was nice. today. That's nice. Do you have any um, morning routines or or kind of a process or a syntax or a system you follow when you wake up? Um, 
not really. I've been trying to get better about not immediately diving into work. Mm. Because uh, one of one of the things that's become become pretty present to me over the last couple of years is that I very definitely have workaholic tendencies. Yeah. So I I have so I've started keeping my phone out of my bedroom. Smart. I do the same. So yeah. and that's part of that's also because if it's right sitting right next to me, I'll hit snooze and turn turn mm-hmm. over. Um, and at least that gets me gets me moving. Yeah. But so get up usually uh, make some coffee. Although I've been weaning myself off caffeine the last couple of weeks, mm. so today it was. Uh, a combination of hibiscus and moringa tea. That sounds great. Uh, pause there. Um, so oh, it's delicious. Uh, I am a big fan of tea also, but I'm more curious about your weaning yourself off caffeine. So, cause I personally, someone mm-hmm. who gave up caffeine completely about three years ago now. Um, awesome. and I haven't looked back, right? I, I was someone who, if you asked me four years ago and you're like, Hey Rob, you're, you're not going to drink caffeine one day. I'd be like, what? That's crazy. No, I love coffee. So <laughs> what are your reasons for, uh, kind of divesting? Well, so it's a mixed bag. Like, I've never needed coffee to get going mm. for me or caffeine to get going for me. The benefit usually is in not crashing or like early afternoon yeah. and like, and like trying to be and being able to push through that. Uh, but it's actually cause I'm getting this, this time. And like, I just, I'll take breaks every so mm-hmm. often and I'll go through phases where I won't drink coffee. I'll drink, uh, I uh, drink chocolate. Mm. Like I've got, I always have a stash of uh, high quality raw cacao from Guatemala. Yeah, so ho- proper um, hot like chocolate. To make into a drinking, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, into a drink, into a nice drinking chocolate. I've got some like mushroom based chocolate stuff too. Mm-hmm. And like, um, like uh, mud water, things like yeah. that. And so I, I like to switch it up. Uh, this time's actually because I'm get, leaving Saturday to go into the Peruvian Amazon yeah. for a couple of weeks uh, for a retreat. Um, and we'll be doing a dieta while I'm there. And so as part of that is weaning myself off caffeine because I've been working on an NSF grant proposal mm. uh, for the last month and a half straight. And so not much sleep. Understood. And so I've been drinking more, had been drinking more caffeine than usual. And sure. so definitely did not want to be sitting in a room by myself in the jungle with a splitting caffeine headache. Yeah. So to, to explain, kind of set the scene for someone who might not know what you're doing down in Peru. Um, do you want to kind of describe what it is? Yeah. Yeah. So it would be, uh, be working with some uh, uh, curanderas, uh, some maestras. So uh, indigenous uh, leaders and teachers and healers uh, will be doing a 12-day retreat. Have a number, a couple different evening ceremonies with with some, some plant medicines, and but a lot of the time will be doing focused around dieting on a single plant. Mm. So when we're in that first uh, ceremony, the uh, the shaman, the, the curandero will will decide which plant we're going to be dieting with and working with mm-hmm. for for those 12 days. Uh, most likely be since it's my first time doing a dieta, it'll be a plant called bogensana, which is usually what they start people on. Mm. And so that'll be what I eat, will be a part of every meal I eat. Got it. Uh, is for, it, for is that like a days. starch or is it a vegetable or what? It, what is it? Uh, bogensana, I, that's, a, that's a great question. Because yeah. I, I would <laughs> I, I think it has I, to be I, calorically dense. I think it's a leafy green. Yeah, okay. Um, I, yeah, it's... Um, yes. and it also depends then which part of the plant, because yep. the same plant can be starch. It can be greens. It can, mm-hmm. it, it, it all depends. Are Fair. you looking at the root? Yeah. Are you looking at the stem? Are you looking at the leaves? Um, so it'll be my first time doing this type of uh, retreat. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to, to learn. Yeah. And I know you've spent time in the past in Peru. Um, uh, previously Ecuador. Ecuador this time sorry. Yeah. You were in South America. Um, what, what prompted this? Like, was was this something you'd want to do for a long time, or is there some recent activity that that made you say I have to do this now? Or yeah, so 
uh, one of the things that I've I've struggled with for for much of my adult life is uh, depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. and there's probably some ADHD in there as well. Yeah. Uh, and so I've treated it with things like uh, with pharmaceuticals, very like for years, and and they helped. Yeah, uh, they but they didn't necessarily get to the the core issues. Mm. They there was kind of like treating the symptoms. So like the primary medication that I would use, uh, Wellbutrin, mm-hmm. uh, which is great, minimal side effects. Did a good job of keeping the lows from being too low, but it didn't really ever help me feel like there was a path to, for lack of a better term, balance. Mm. Um, but that's 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 often what I keep what I keep coming back to. Yeah, um, is this idea of find, finding balance within myself, mm. um, and kind of that being key to unlocking my my experience of the world, and and part of that's also coming to terms with this may just be my experience of the world, and and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so as a part of that, um, had because of years of being on on Western medicines mm-hmm. and SSRIs and treating it and SSO. Yeah, for me, SNRIs. SNRIs. Actually. SSRIs. So uh, ser- serotonin, yeah. neuro. Uh, was it serotonin, norepinephrine uptake rehabilitation? Got it. And then, so what's the so um, someone that my brain, know, for, for me, it's dopamine. Yeah, sure. So someone that doesn't know, what's the difference between an SSRI and SNRI? Uh, so it depends. It just they act on different neurotransmitters within the brain. Okay. That makes sense. So uh, SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm. They basically block the uh, the receptor. If I'm remember, remembering correctly, they block the brain's receptor, which forces, uh, which would normally reabsorb the serotonin yeah. and kind of forces the uh, the body to uh, take up more more serotonin. Okay. With SNRIs, it's focused on a different one, which is more uh, norepinephrine, yeah. and then also it acts on dopamine. Hmm. Okay. And is this something that was prescribed? Um, that's not the question I want to ask. So, I mean, I, I think th- there's been a big. Um, I will get to that, but like, well, I, there's there's been a big movement yeah, well, here, recently me... to to get off these drugs, right? Because because I think that there are just so many people and I've, I've had psychiatrists and psychologists in my life try to give me these drugs. And I've always said no, because I had friends who, you know, who said like, look, if you, if you can, if you can just even squeak by without using them, do it. Um, is like generally what I, what I've been told by people that care about me. It, it depends. I mean, they're, they're definitely, they're a good tool, yep. but they're not the only tool. Yes. Is, is kind of how I, how I, approach mm. it. they've had, I've had great benefit from, from them. And there are times even, more recently, where I will go back on them if I'm having Got particular it. struggles, okay. Uh, in order to kind of, but for me, it's about having recognizing that there is no one right way, mm-hmm. and that there there are many approaches. And then, for for me, it's also the reality that we have this idea that Western medicine, and and I come from a family like, all my like most of my aunts and uncles and grandparents, in the in yeah. doctors nurses very very much in the medical field, but I also am very present to the reality that modern medicine is young yes very young modern medicine is hundred couple hundred years mm-hmm. if that Ver- so when when i think about well what's it look what's it mean to be human mm-hmm. and what and the entirety of human existence there's a lot of tools that we've had yeah way before that that worked for a long time for a lot of people we ever before we ever kind of came to this point of, of pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. uh so in realizing that began to explore kind of different different ways that Perhaps other cultures, non-Western cultures, have have looked uh, to to deal with some of these struggles because these aren't new struggles. Yeah. Though, because of the structure of, Amer- of our current society and the way we live these days, there seems to be more present because there's that misalignment. I think with with kind of what it means to be human and what it means to be in balance with with the ecosystem. Mm. So, in looking and thinking about that, began to look at indigenous cultures and some of their approaches and 
that have been around for thousands of years. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, and that practices have carried that long, which tells me even if they're, that they're, that there's something, what they wouldn't keep Um, doing it if it wasn't working for at least some people. Right. right? Exactly. And so kind of took the, decided to start taking the approach of looking at kind of my struggles as my soul telling me there's something I need to look at it. And there's things I, that there's things inside that I need to face yeah. and, or kind of understand what it means to live, exist within this modern construct. And that's, and I, and I and love your approach. It's very, it's very healthy and balanced. And so the question I stopped myself from asking earlier, because I think I, I wanted more background before I came back to it, which is, you know, you seem to have, as I just said, a very balanced approach now, but when you were first prescribed these, this medication or any of these combination of medications, whatever, whatever it was, what was your mindset then? And how has it changed? Um, I mean, I've always been the type of person where if I don't need to be on a, on a a medicine, I don't want to be on that medicine. And, and that's both, and a lot of it has to do with just knowing the levels of Mm prescription of medications that we have. Um, just knowing that there's no such thing as a, as a medicine that's not going to have some side effect of some sort. Yeah. Um, and various ones have more, have impacted me more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's something I've always kind of tried to approach with that sense about, and it's also I, like growing up, like if I was sick, it's like, well, is my snot green? No. Okay. Then no need to go to the doctor, take some chicken noodle soup, take some vitamin C, get lots of water and rest. Cause it's a virus and it's not a bacteria and I don't, and there's, there, there's not going to be a medication for that because yeah, absolutely, uh, antivirals aren't really a thing for the most part. So in in this case, it was more recognizing that the medications I'd been taking had, had served me well to a point, but that I still wasn't to a place where I wasn't to the place I wanted to be yeah. in, in how, how I engage with my, my mental health and how I engage and what that means for how I engage with the world. Mm. And so it's interesting since I first started working on uh, and just for those who clear, it's the uh, well, medicine that we're talking about is uh, ayahuasca. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I picked up on that, but... <laughs> which is a uh, true, yeah, yeah. Th- which is a traditional uh, uh, medicine that's combination of the ayahuasca vine, which is a MAOI inhibitor, mm-hmm. inhibitor, which means that it basically turns off a certain uh, enzyme in your stomach, hmm. and in doing so allows uh, DMT, which generally comes from a different plant in Ecuador. Yep. It's a the leaf of a plant called chalipanga. Mm-hmm. In Peru, it's a generally leaf of a plant called chacruna, mm-hmm. uh, and then th- those are all cooked together, and so that carries DMT, which then, because of the ayahuasca, is able to pass huh. through the the stomach into the gut. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, and so yeah, it's really that's fascinating. fascinating. Uh, and they figured this out thousands of years ago. Like they they you know yeah. the plants told yeah, them. the plants told them. I'm sure. Literally, like yeah. I, it's I mean being like the experience of being in in Ecuador mm. and and working with the Kitra shaman that I've worked with and just their experience of the world is just so different because for them, the jungle is their pharmacy. It is their grocery store. Um, It's, I mean, obviously they still, they go to, there's, it's not Mm -hmm. like they're living completely. There's still, there's a lot of Western, Westernization and access to all medicine. And there, and there are times when they're like, yeah, no, I'm going to, I'm going to a Western doctor for this. Yeah. Um, Gunshot wounds, a good example, or, you know, getting stabbed by, or, you know, even bit by a snake. Or some bacterial, in fact, like, (laughs) like bacterial stomach infections. Like there's certain things that just, yeah. but then there's also the reality that a lot of our Western medicines are derived Mm -hmm. from plants that were discovered through the, by the shamans. 
and others uh, throughout yeah, history. Yeah, and pharmaceutical companies so. are currently carving up the Amazon for these, you know, different plants, which yep. is really sad. Most people don't know is happening. You know, you, you have these, you know, tribes and collectives of people that have existed for thousands of years that have known and kept these plants, you know, sacred in their cultures. And then you have someone like Purdue coming in and saying, oh, we're going to make some new drug and make billions of dollars a year. And that never comes yep. back to the original. And also like the thing is, is the side effects that come from modern drugs, they, those usually aren't associated with the original, uh, you know, oh, no. those come from the process no, of no. the drug. Right. And because you're, because a lot of times you're trying, they're trying to create an isolation of a single, uh, single portion of the plant yeah. when the reality is it's the holistic experience mm -hmm. and the holistic reality of, of, of that, of the, the plant medicine that's, that's creating the, the, and the sad thing is um, most medications nowadays are optimized to have at least interaction with other medications because people are just so over medicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, and then there's, and, and this is where we get, can get a, a little more, it gets a little more spiritual yeah. too, is that I, I think part of it is also you're stripping the soul from the plants mm. uh, because the, because the same medicine can work in different ways, depending on what's going on with you. Yes. Uh, and, and that's true of, but obviously farm schools, but that's really true of some of these indigenous medicines, indigenous practices. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm personally a hardcore agnostic. Mm. Like I'm pretty sure I'm never going to know. And I yeah. have proof one way or another of the existence of God, the of a, a God or yeah. anything. But I have also had experiences while working with the medicine mm -hmm. in the jungle where I I get why indigenous cultures believe that there's spirits in anything. Absolutely. Everything has a spirit. Yeah. And that includes the rocks. That includes it's the rocks. Because honestly, the I've, yeah. I've seen them. Yeah. yeah when, I, when, when I was I, in Peru earlier this year, it was the same thing where as someone who identifies as agnostic, I was amazed at how almost turned on to the idea that I became about like, you know, I, I see it and I feel it. And I was, I didn't do any ayahuasca when I was in Peru. Right. I kind of wish I did. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's so deep in their culture and so entrenched in what they believe and you can see it in their architecture and the way they yeah. treat new people. And, you know, I, th I think people see Peru as Machu Picchu and then maybe as Cusco airport when they connect to Cusco. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I, I think I was lucky that my girlfriend and I, we, we went and did the Inca trail, but we did the orange trail, which is like the, the one that hasn't been used in a while. And there was a couple times where like we ran into indigenous herders that are just living up in the highlands that just, you know, they, they follow this pack of, of sheep around and that's all they do. Um, there's actually yeah. a fun, scary moment where a uh, fun, scary moment. Um, so our guide told us the night before over dinner, he's like, by the way, there's a chance that we run into this wild bull that lives up there. And he's like, there's been so few people that, that the bull there's been bulls that have gone up into these, in these highlands. And he's like, if we run into it, we may have to like sprint quickly towards a more steep incline. So it can't attack us. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa what? Uh, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't just, you can't just brush over that. And so lo and behold, like we're hiking up, you know, we're already at 14,000 feet hiking up this, you know, big valley, you know, basically I'm, I've, I've hiked at Algae before since my girlfriend, we, you know, but still it, it's, it's tolling and we're up 14,000 feet is no it's joke. No joke. And, and I'm, I'm out of breath. I get up there and all of a sudden my guy's yeah. 20 feet ahead of me and all of a sudden he just like stops cold. And I'm just like, Oh fuck. Like we're, I, I was like, he definitely saw the bolt, didn't he? And he just, he just comes up. He's like, okay, we have to move over here because like the bull luckily for us was probably half a click away from us 
And as soon as it saw him, it started nice. running around in circles. And so he was like, oh, no. Oh, boy. But luckily, it saw all of us um, and kind of kept its distance. It was unsure and it moved oh, forwards good. and moved backwards. So it could have gone downhill. And I realized that. Like, one of the things later on, I was like, that could have been a lot worse than I thought. And I think that my girlfriend at the time, I was a little freaked out and she wasn't. And I, and she kind of saw my face and she kind of had that face like, maybe I should be more worried about this than I am. It's like, yeah. It's like, if he's... <laughs> but but yeah. lo lo long story short, like... Is this really interesting um, uh, ec ecology of of I mean, ge it's geology really of of the landscape where there are these kind of grassy fields and a moraine almost, and then interlaced with these mm -hmm. very kind of steep, rocky, slate-based kind of falling. And so basically, you'd have like this very flattish ground that slowly raises uphill, which the bull could walk on. Then also there'd be this like steep kind of ravine type thing in between. And the bull could not go on that. So, like, luckily there are plenty of places right. where, like, if you if if a bull's five hundred meters away, so it's running at you, you have a minute at least, right? So, like, that's right. what I was thinking about it. Is like there are many places we can go, but it's not something I want to deal with. Also, like, how patient is that bull to sit there and wait for you? You know, if it really wants to mess up your day, it's going to wait. You know, um, but you know, he also he also told me that they have you know. Um, he had a flare gun that he could use because they just terrified of loud noises. Um, and uh, yeah. but long story short, yeah. So like it was, it was, it was fun. It was crazy, but it's amazing seeing just in just that simple idea. Like there are so many pieces of just the natural world and culture that play so deeply into their belief systems, um, and they love coca leaf. Uh, they love coca. Leaf. Oh yeah, well at, at altitude. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember uh, back in grad school. Yeah, did try my first trip to South America. Uh, yeah, flew into Lima, hung out for there for a couple of days, and then popped up to Cusco yep. and did the uh, the day trip day trip out to Machu Picchu by the train. Yep. But yeah, getting there like, but I mean, coca helps with altitude. I, the problem with me I, is I remember that coca tea. But... Yeah, the problem with me is like I'm so off stimulants that I knew it would have just it probably would have just caused anxiety in me, right? Because I I've heard it's like the <laughs> amount of the amount of like caffeine or caffeine adjacent um, molecules and and coca. Um, I don't think it's actually caffeine. I think it's something else, but it, it acts the same way as caffeine. Yeah, I don't think it's caffeine. No, but I mean, I was, because I'm, so I got off caffeine a few years ago for for two main reasons. One, like I was going through a lot of anxiety at the time um, related to other things, but I think it was anxiety was also causing depression and, and some other things. I ADHD, ADHD and OCD were like my, my ground. And then anxiety was becoming the lift and then the ceiling was the depression if that makes sense so like it was it was bringing me closer yep, and down. totally makes yeah. sense to me <laughs> and so caffeine was always as, as always kind of triggered me a bit and so i definitely get more sh shaken on caffeine and i'm just super susceptible to it and then i actually you know had a heart issue that i got fixed surgically and mm -hmm. now i'm mostly fine but like caffeine was one of the major triggers of that does it make sense like it's it's a it's a stimulant so yeah. i basically you know took some time off because i was just feeling like this was a lot and i and like the caffeine headaches were terrible like if any if, if like i mean caffeine is a drug people people got to realize like when i say i said this before on podcasts like it's probably the largest controlled substance in the world um mm -hmm. in terms of distribution and i think it's something that like people are highly addicted to. And if, and if, if someone's just like, I'm not addicted to it, but they're like, I can't operate until I have my caffeine. It's like, that's addiction, plain and simple, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's fine. And, and, and that's part of why I make a point to take breaks. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't like being beholden to yeah. a substance like that. Do you drink at all? Um, um, I do not to, I not as much as I once did, mm -hmm. uh, as a former rugby player, sure. that was a significant, yeah. there were significant amounts of that's drinking culture, uh, though. at a younger, yeah. that's, that's, yeah, 
but it's i mean i've never been the type to drink by myself or or anything and like so so okay. but at the same time definitely they're within my family there have our our addictive tendencies yeah same um, here and i i, th- I mean it, i think that's natural to the human condition at this point yeah and admittedly i mean I, i've channeled, channeled most of mine into cannabis yeah so cool like if i were to be addicted to something might as well be addicted to something that's not going to kill me yeah sure um, and that's a lot of my friends have kind of transitioned that way, you know, replaced alcohol and other recreational things with, with cannabis, especially edibles. Now that it's just so yeah. easy to get. Yeah. I, I'm never edibles. Like, I don't know. I, I, Cause my part of it's also like, if I'm be high, I want to be high. They'll probably like that. Yeah. There's that instant, for me, there's an instant gratification element. Yeah. So, and, and I also have always liked the act of smoking. Yeah. It probably comes from having had a mother who smoked before for uh, 30 Makes years. Sense. Um, there is a ceremonial aspect to smoking, which I think is innately intertwined with the human condition that's been around for thousands of years. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, tobacco is a powerful medicine. Powerful. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's like it's used yeah. not not as in medicine. the form of the modern like, cigarettes. Cult- cultures. <laughs> no, no, like like real like, yeah. like proper leaf. Yeah. Yeah, like one of the shamans I worked with in Ecuador, mm-hmm. they would grow, they grew their own tobacco, they cured their own tobacco, yeah. they rolled their own uh, mapachos. Yeah. Uh, which is with, mm-hmm. the, with a banana leaf. I'd smoke one of those. Yeah. I have no interest in a cigarette, but I would smoke whatever they're rolling down there, you know? Yeah. Well, and for them, it's, it's, it's less that they're inhaling. It's more that it's blessing. Mm-hmm. It's cause, and cause tobacco is then also used as a, a curative. Like you'll, there's ceremonies mm-hmm. where you, you actually drink tobacco juice yeah. Interesting. And, and use it as a purgative to, to clear. Wow. Um, and it's got, so it's, or like dra- drop some, uh, it down your nose, mm-hmm. like clear sinuses. Like it, it's got a lot of, it's a very powerful medicine as well yeah um and it's just yet another example of something that we kind of have taken from this very powerful ritualized experience where it has many mm. like real positives and turned it into this thing where we seem to to really capture the negatives um, yeah by, by commercializing it. so you you seem to know quite a lot about plants and 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 beyond that you... I, I know a lot about a lot i know, like, I know I, a lot about that just happens to be what we're talking yeah, about for sure um <laughs> you and i have talked many times before and I, I know you're someone that when when i when i hit a subject that you enjoy I, it's like opening this gold mine of information and i love to listen to it <laughs> but um so i'm just curious like did did you um is this all self-learned did you ever like just is this just an, like i guess my question is in this particular field of of of, of thought did, did it come from your own uh, things that you want to deal with? So you wanted to find solutions to depression and anxiety and, and you kind of went down this hole or did it come from like a love for nature and ecology or wh- where did this come from? I, it's, I mean, it's been, it's more been like, it was something that like, I remember like first time hearing about ayahuasca like years ago and like, it was like, Oh, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but also kind of just knowing innately that it's not something that I, I should seek out. Mm-hmm. If that makes any yeah, sort of sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like it wasn't like, so it was like another like two, three years before it crossed my path. Um, and, and the timing was, was right. It found, it actually found me at pro- what's it's probably arguably be my nadir mm. in terms of my depression and in terms of like, like I was just lying on my couch for weeks on end doing nothing. I feel um, that. And like, and not even care and like not caring that I was doing nothing like, like beyond depression into like apathetic depression. It was like apathetic disinterest of life. Hmm. Um, and, and yeah, and like, so it really was kind of about, well, how do I, how do I find my path? It's, it's, so it's, I, I, I love nature. I love plants. I love, yeah. 
and I also also really really appreciate that there's so much that I don't know and will never mm. know. That's the beauty of science and nature, I, though. But yeah. yeah, it's like it's like it's, there's always more. It's never and finished. And that goes back yeah. to like to like I mean, and that goes back to like I mean, hum, early early human history. I mean, we've got the like what is it Socrates that. Uh, well, all that I know that is that I know nothing or is that Plato or Plato is one of one of those guys. Yeah. One of those old deadbeats. Yeah. One of those, one of those um, old deadbeats. Yeah. <laughs> the Stoics. But yeah. it's, it's really, it's that, yeah. Well, cause that, and then it gets to this, the reality that, I mean, like we, I don't even know like what real what we mean when we say reality, because mm. we don't directly experience the world. Yeah. We, our brain is interpreting electrical signals from our eyes, from our nerve endings. Yeah. So like for, and, and then you get, and then, it can get really weird. We live in the past. Look at physics. Yeah, because like by the time we uh, interpret what we're actually seeing with our eyes, it's already happened. So we live in the past, technically. Yeah, even if it's a microsecond <laughs> lag, it's, it's, it's still it's a still lag. Yeah, yeah, and th and then you get into wow. some of the like, kind of fascinating stuff that they're looking at in physics right now, and the there and the possibilities that the universe might actually be a two dimensional hologram that we experience in three D in three dimensions. Yeah. That's my um, favorite so far. I like that. Oh, it's one of them, and that and that's before we even get into simulation theory. Yeah. Um, I I still think but it's, we are probably living in a simulation, but I, we so very well could yeah. be. But the, but then it comes. Then the question is, does it matter? No. Are you having fun? <laughs> are you enjoying your life like I am? Right. Right. Like, uh, yeah. Like I mean, have you? So I I to keep this keep this topic going. Have you seen the movie Don't Worry, Darling? That came out recently. Olivia Wilde. Uh, I haven't. Okay. You should you just just no. just just. Oh, the that was the one with like Harry Styles. Where there was all the drama. Yeah. Was like, yeah. Got, okay. Here's the thing. It got a lot of backlash. I don't know why, because like I, I've watched it. A few of my friends have watched it, my parents have watched it, and it's really well done. And I think there's a lot of things we talked about that are part of that movie. Um, and that's all I'll say, because I don't wanna I don't wanna spoil any because it's one of those movies that like once you see it once, you can never get that same experience again. Right. Um, so I'll Fair I'll enough. leave that there and then quickly transition. So before we die before I dive into like what you spend most of your time on now, um, your first experience with ayahuasca, what was that like? Oh, it's beautiful. Um, well, yeah. Well, it's always beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I should probably preface it that, like, even the mo at its most terrifying, mm -hmm. it's still beautiful to me mm -hmm. because I, as long as I gain something from it, I don't believe there's such a thing as a bad experience. Got it. And when you say terrifying, uh, like as in like you got to a bad place during your, as uh, well. So, so, so I'll explain. Okay. I'll here. I'll share share my experience. My, my first weekend, um, two ceremonies. Um, actually, I'll just just under six years ago mm -hmm. i think that was like february 2017 um and first night beautiful amazing incredibly peaceful um the 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 madre which is is but that because mm -hmm. the the medicine the ayahuasca itself is, is often referred to as the madre as the grandmother um that's that's how it's seen in indigenous cultures um so she actually appeared to me like first presented herself in a way that i was i could understand mm. um was in my 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 first actually my first experience with working with uh, with psychedelics in terms of mental health was actually salvia divinorum back in my early twenties, uh, kind of at the end of college, which is a variety of shade of sage that's used by shamans in Oaxaca. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I've heard of it. It rings a bell. And so it's something that you smoke, and reality goes bye bye for about fifteen <laughs> minutes, um, and then it slowly comes back. Like you know those. Uh, screens like the old CRT screens where you'd have the degauss button yeah. that you'd hit and the monitor would go crazy and then slowly come yeah. back. That's kind of what it does to reality. Oh wow! And it and so like for me and like but similarly cleans it. And so like coming the experience of after that was 
beautiful. Like everything is right with the world. And then, and so that was something that I would work with every six months or so um, as, as a, as a, as a form of self-care. And so, but it has a very physical presence. Like you get hot, Mm -hmm. it has a weight. Like there's a real physical experience. That's beautiful. And so one of the first, it is, It, it, it can be terrifying, but it, but it can all, but once you learn to let go, and just give yourself over to it and trust it. Mm-hmm. It's 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 incredible. Yeah. Um, and for me, it ends up being realities overlaid with these little like cellular, really bright orange and yellow and red cellular structures. Mm. Like if you've ever seen like those yarn paintings from Oaxaca. Yes. Very yeah, similar. Those are beautiful. To, to, yeah. Yeah. And okay. that and that is kind of though that's my kind of my what my experience with uh, Salvio was like. But so, first time I did ayahuasca, when I when I. You, you drink it and then it takes about half hour, 45 minutes to work its way mm. through your system and start hit. And I'm pretty sure it's your vagus nerve. What's the taste like acting through? Um, it can depend on the brew, sure. but not good. No. Yeah. <laughs> Although sometimes it does taste good. It's this like weird, sickly, sweet, bittery. Huh. It, it's, I, it's, I'm, there's nothing quite like it. Okay. Um, got it for better or for worse. Um, but so, so the first, first goes to your vagus nerve. Sorry. I interrupted you. It, she, she, yeah, no, well the, the vagus nerve, that's just a, aside because i'm pretty sure the vagus nerve is how it interacts with your system Mm. Uh, for those listeners who may not know the vagus nerve is like your second brain Mm -hmm. it's this giant nerve bundle that runs from your brain to your gut Mm -hmm. um and it's uh, it's believed to be kind of at the core of the gut mind nexus yeah it's fascinating key for why gut health and mental health are are really intertwined um but so yeah back to what you're actually asking so the first time i drink it the the madre the, the it shows up as if it was salvia. So I start having the experience, like feeling like I did when, with salvia, where I started to get hot. I started to feel this weight. And it was like, it, it, it was like it had plumbed my, 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 my psyche and realized, oh, if I do this, Sam will know to let go. Hmm. And so, so it showed That's up in a way I was like, oh, I know what to do. Yeah. Here. I let go. Oh, wow. And, and so, so I did and had this amazingly beautiful experience of, of being a Buddha sitting in stillness for millennia and just watching years pass like seconds and, and then being called to, to kind of shake, to shake off that stillness um, and, and, and to, to step forward, to step into, to action. Hmm. Um, it was like, almost like being, being pulled, like part of me, part of my soul was like being woken up. If it, if it might be a way of, of doing it. I hadn't really even thought about it that before this, like that hmm. before this moment, but yeah, that's beautiful. in some ways yeah. I think it was almost like there part of my soul was, was being called to wake up. And and so that night, beautiful, glorious, peaceful, just everything very mellow, very just yeah, beautiful. The next night, I have never been to more terrified in my entire life. Really, I was convinced we are all about to die cataclysmic deaths, and there was nothing we could do about it. Holy hell! And I had to sit with that for hours and hours. And here I am trying, like, okay, I'm like, okay, well, what? Am, it's death. What am I supposed? I'm supposed to let go. I need to let go of this. This 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 life, this existence. Mm. That I was thought that's what it was telling, but that just made me cause me more mm. more suffering. So where where I finally found my peace was was in the realization that that I am not wired to let go. I am not wired to give up. I am wired to fight. And then from that had this experience of being of early humans in a cave mm. um, around the fire, and there's something outside, and there's something there's an unknown danger outside. And I was realized that my my job was to stand in that doorway and to fight. And 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 if it was if 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 and if I died doing that, hmm. who cares? Like I'm okay with so that. So even but this but my job was to protect whoever was behind me. 
and to not whatever that make sure whatever that was didn't get in. Huh. And that's where I found my peace. That's amazing. So during this, it, it doesn't sound like it was anxiety inducing. It was almost like you could see both ends, right? It doesn't seem like you were like about to have a panic attack. It seems like you were like in. Well, oh, it, in the heart of it, I was in a fetal position rocking back and forth. Okay. <laughs> like I was yeah. terrified. I was like, yeah. Not no, laughing was, at you. I'm just afraid about myself when I do that. Oh, yeah, no. It's, yeah. <laughs> This is kind of this experience okay. of uh, like over hours because I mean uh, the ceremonies and these journeys take six seven hours. Yeah, I was gonna say it's, it, you start, it lasts a started long time. you start at sundown and you finish between like two and five a.m. Sometimes later, like, and so it was. But in the ceremonies, there's music. There's and different cultures of different styles, mm-hmm. but but yeah, and and like and to me, like even though that was, I literally have never been more scared in my life. It was it was beautiful because I had that 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 realization about myself and like that really just present to my, to my role as a guardian in some way so that, that my job is to fight for others. Is someone like, do you have a chaperone, I guess? Uh... Oh yeah. There's uh, okay. yeah, there, there's the, yeah, you do, this is not something you do by yeah, yourself. Yeah. Okay. I figured. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, like, and same with like Salvia, if you're doing Salvia, have someone with you. Yeah. Uh, babysitting, even if you're just taking turns. Yep. Um, but with, uh, I, I was asking, no, you want to, it's the space is how the space is held is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, you all, it's not something you just want to try on a whim with people you've never met before in a space that you don't know the safety of. Like mm. it's the safety of that space is, is, is critical and finding um, someone and, and working with someone who a facilitator or a shaman or who, who really knows what they're doing yeah. is, is, is really important. What can go wrong? And, I, and I've been lucky to, um, and I've just been lucky yeah, to, to find people and to work with people who are really, um, who I and, and part of that's getting to meet them first mm. and like feel and feel like comfortable feeling and exactly yeah um, and and getting a getting a sense of who they are and their their energy like it's it's weird because that scientist in me hears some of the things I say I'm like what is wrong? <laughs> um, and then the spiritualist in me is like just starts laughing so yeah. <laughs> so I sorry I, I didn't mean I keep interrupting you because I'm just so so curious about no this. it's okay uh, so in terms of what what can go wrong I mean. So it's people not, have like, like heart I attacks or panic attacks or like I mean, well, there's certain there, there are certain yeah. meta like medications mm-hmm. and certain medical conditions that you do not want to that would preclude you from 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 working with it. Okay. Um, and that's also if someone if you're come across it and the person isn't asking about those things, it's probably not, probably not the good. right space. Okay. Um, like the signs on the edge of Cusco that are like ayahuasca experience twenty nine U S dollars. It's like yeah, I don't want to do that. No, thank you. Right. <laughs> it's, it's someone's dark room in their basement yeah right um but it's it's so and and but part of it's also it's like it's challenging i mean a lot of it is you are unpacking mm. trauma and experience and experiences and, and not just your trauma but like generational trauma yeah like like i've seen like it's and it can be it can be hard and if you're not if it's not the right space for that and and you're not in the right right kind of space to be to be doing it 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 could potentially, yeah, you could potentially, it could potentially have negative impacts. Mm. Um, so it's, it's definitely not something to be, to be engaged with lightly. Yeah. And what I, it's, it's and what I will like, say to everyone it's, listening, it's not, it's not, it's not something you do for no. fun. And to everyone listening, like uh, Sam and I are doctors. We don't play one on the internet. So like definitely make nope. sure you, if you decide you want to do this yourself, make sure you go and seek out the right people and make sure to something right for you. We are in no way condoning. Yeah. And, and if you're lucky, you're, you'll, you'll find someone like I did, like, like my psychiatrist is fully on board with my exploration That's awesome. of, 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 alter- of alternatives. Cause he's like, well, clearly it's working. Mm-hmm. 
So, so it's like, and when it stops working, we can talk about other possibilities. So, so this is the second interview I've had in a row. Um, last week I interviewed uh, this amazing artist named Rob Garrett, who's based in Bend, Oregon. And um, he has a psychologist that he does um, psilocybin-based therapy with. Um, nice. And so it's 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 really interesting hearing like just how many people, psychologists, psychiatrists in in the kind of mental health mind space are are becoming more open to these traditional I call it traditional means of of solving problems, right? Because people people are calling them drugs. I really really call it drugs. Like I don't consider ayahuasca a drug no. or psilocybin a drug. It's a it's a solution. I mean, yes, solution. yes. Insofar yeah. as so is coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As we discussed, so is sugar. Um, so is alcohol. Well, and what, you know? Yeah, well, there is one really, really interesting aspect to ayahuasca, which is that it's not that the idea that ever that you do it is a Western construct. Mm-hmm. Histor- like traditionally, at least this is my my understanding from from books or what I've read, and not, is that historically the shaman would do would be the one who would drink the ayahuasca and then mm-hmm. tell you what's wrong and and, and prescribe you plants yeah. to treat it. Um, so this idea that you're, that you as the patient are experiencing the, the ayahuasca is actually, seems to be something of a, a kind of more, more modern, uh, thing that's arisen more and more as kind of Westerners. Cause you know how we, we gotta, we gotta try it. Um, try everything. but it, right. But from that, there's, has been this, uh, this real like possible opening of, of different possibilities. Um, yeah. cause I know there's like, it's, it and it can be particularly yeah, I mean, it's particularly powerful in treating and healing traumas and healing addic- like which can be the root of addictions, can be the root yeah, of a lot of other totally. other issues. And hmm. like, and for me myself, like, I had uh, one particular experience in uh, my second time in Ecuador um, in summer of 2018. Since which I, for the most part, except for once or twice when I was in a pretty bad spot, have not been on um, from on Western antidepressants. Hmm. Um. And it's and it was the first time that? coming out of well, well, so it was fascinating. So this was over a series of number of nights, um, where we was there for like two weeks. Mm-hmm. So we're doing like six ceremonies over like ten days or something. And like kind of in the middle, like the night before, it become like present to kind of a, a wall that I had built up around around parts of me, mm. um, and and in identifying it, started to break that down. And the then the next night. Um, in some way, my, uh, the spirit, my, the spirit of my father's father, um, appeared to me, hmm. not as I had known him after he'd had a stroke and, and everything, but when he was in his prime, when he was a big game hunter, when he was uh, running a hospital, when he was like this incredibly accomplished individual who by all accounts, uh, might not have been the nicest of people. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience of, of him as the first, as the first grandchild was, was always very positive. But I, as I've grown older, I've, I've come to recognize that he, he wasn't, wasn't the, the nicest of all people. And, and there's, there's realities around that. And, and ended up getting to a point and like was also pre- in, during the ceremony present to the impact that that had had on my father, yeah. um, who, who died relatively young from a heart attack, but who suffered Sorry to hear that. Severe, severe back issues for, for decades. Um, and substance abuse issues were as a part of that. Um, and and kind of was just very present to how much of that was basically like I blamed his father like well n- not that I blamed but was a result of his his relationship and his experience of of his father yeah <laughs> well family trauma so, is hard yeah definitely hard it is everyone has that. yeah and so so in this yeah. yeah oh and then we all and it's and different takes so many different forms and shapes mm-hmm. and so in this moment 
there came a point where I'm literally sitting there, hand holding it like by the collar, ready to to fight and to destroy him. Like, and in that moment, like realize that doing that would be to step on his path. Mm. And is and and that, like because and then because in that moment it was very very there's this kind of this rea- the reality of experiencing my dad's dad as kind of the darkness inside me. Yep. And my and then in that moment calling on my mom's dad who to me represent was the kindest most gentlest person I ever met like, like literally the only person I know him to have disliked was my dad's father. And so in that moment kind of, and to me it very much represents love. That's heavy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and so so in that moment instead of like I literally was saying my my name is Samuel like I was going full in Eagle Montoya. Like I was literally saying, my name is Samuel Emil Rubin. You killed my fa- father. Prepare to fucking die. And and in that moment, it was like, no, that's that's not. I I that I don't. That's not. That's not the way. Yeah. Right. So instead, called on my other grandfather and like the love that he represented, and use that to absorb instead of destroy um, my dad's like other grandfather's spirit to absorb his spirit hmm. in, in, and. And and that moment is like the first is since then that's when I no longer felt I needed to be on antidepressants. Wow! And that, from that moment it was just was like, like a, when I first like, single moment. It was like coming out of that was just mm-hmm. like after that. I mean, it was that entire trip when I came back because okay. obviously you're not taking antidepressants when you're working. No, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, these are it's just that can be bad. Yeah. Um. But it but it was the, but that's the moment where I for the first time in my life felt I might be capable of finding balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it was very much that kind of age old human story of, of, of the light and the dark, the fact, and the, and that reality that, that we are both. Yeah. Um, and, and that, and it's, and it's about that balance. It's about, you know, you don't want to, can't go too far one way or other because then we lose ourselves or we, we, we're like, it just, we're not. Yeah. And so it's, that's, that experience has been, was just, yeah. Amazingly profound. Yeah. And, and coming, and then coming out of that. For the first time ever, yeah, I felt like I was in a position to potentially find the balance that I've I've been seeking. Mm. Still haven't found it yet, um, but uh, and may never find mm-hmm. it. But maybe the finding isn't the thing. Maybe it's the the journey is. Yeah, and the and the and the continual it's exploration. It's like mm. uh, the idea of like kaizen, like yeah. continuous improvement, slowly iterating uh, to, to to bring yeah. to bring in corporate operational <laughs> concepts. Um, <laughs> no, to bring in beautiful traditional Japanese concepts that have been destroyed by yeah, I know which have been which have been destroyed and applied to uh, to uh, manufacturing processes. So, um, uh, if if someone listening right now, uh, like I am, is, is is moved by your experience with this, what is the what is the best way you recommend people go about um, beginning to to think about exploring this experience? Um, re- um research, mm-hmm. look online. Like it's one of the, it's one of those things. Like I. As I said before, it's one something that I don't think you should necessarily seek it out. Mm. But I think there it comes to you. The idea it it, it tends to find you when yeah. when the time's right. That's that's been my experience, both for myself and just from the stories others have told me about okay. kind of when when the medicine found them. Yeah. But but begin but beginning being open to it, mm. I think is is the key. And part of that and and just that act of opening and being open to new different possibilities yeah. can in and of itself be a, be a powerful, powerful medicine. Yeah. Uh, Are there any other ancient hallucinogens like maybe, uh, and I mean ancient in the term like pre-Western medicine, uh, maybe like peyote or anything else that you have interest in, in experiencing? I, yeah, I, I would, I would love to, to work with peyote is not, not cross my path. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Ibogaine or Iboga yeah. is another one that that terrifies me, but fascinates me at the same time. Uh, Iboga is uh, indigenous to, I believe, uh, Western Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also utilized uh, in various forms at some uh, clinics in like Costa Rica yeah. and elsewhere to help with PTSD. It's and, big in uh, like uh, Senegal, opioid addiction. Ghana, right? Iboga. Um, yeah. Yeah, Ghana. Yeah, and I've, and I've had friends who have gone and, and my understanding is generally if you're working with Iboga there, yeah. part of that, you're basically going through their initiation mm-hmm. ritual. So you are a member of that tribe. That's amazing. And so it's a very, mm-hmm. but then, so that's, there's a whole, that has, that's fraught with its own. For sure. Yeah. So, for me. but, yeah. um, but th- this whole idea, like, but that's, mm-hmm. that's a whole other. So if I take away um, one thing from, from to listening to this whole experience, it seems like if really two things, you have to wait till it's the right point in your life to do it. Part one, part two. Also, if you're doing it anywhere else besides the, from the people that have been doing this for generations, you're not, you shouldn't be doing it. Right. I no. Mm. I, I, the first one, yes, okay. it's, it's really about, it, it, it finds you when the time's mm-hmm. right. Um, the second one, less so, mm-hmm. but it's about finding the, the right people who are doing it for the right reasons and holding the space in the right okay. place. Cool. Um, so, cause actually the majority of my work has not been with a traditional shaman. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's actually been with, with the Westerner. Cool. Um, who's worked with various communities and in, inside, mm-hmm. um, but has through that through their own work yeah. have become very very adept at holding that space for others mm. um and, and approach it with with respect and, mm-hmm. and and really understand what it what it what it means and what it is and what it can be mm. um rather than just seeing it as a way to to make money or a way to get high or, totally. or something like that it's really yeah. it's really what's what's it mean and and understanding what's like now's not the right mm. thing and like and part of that's all just is like learning to trust your intuition Agreed. To Which is huge and very important to many people. But so I guess the follow-up question to that would be to someone who might not trust their intuition, someone who's highly indecisive, someone that has struggled with decision-making maybe from past family trauma about everyone second-guessing their decisions or, or anything related to that. What, what would you kind of, what would your advice for that be? Lean in. Yeah. I mean, by like this trip to Peru, I'm, terrified i found myself incredibly resistant to the like i was like oh this would probably like it's a different experience it's one where and and it's admittedly it's not the the medicine work that terrifies me mm. it's the days spent in silence with my own head without any escape yeah like no can't like i'm not gonna be all i'm not gonna like normally if i was by myself like I'd be high watching tv mm-hmm. because that's what i that's how i how i simulated but yeah. no no this time i get to I, I get to sit with mm-hmm. it and I get to be, and that terrifies me. Yeah. Um, which is part of why I'm doing it. I love that. It's not part of why that is why do what scares you um, is important for, I think anyone. Yeah. It's like, I found myself resistant to it, like resisting it, and not for reasons that I had a good explanation. For. Mm. Like it wasn't like I'm resisting it because, Oh, there's this risk or that risk. It's like, I'm resisting it and I don't really know why. So I'm going to do it. It's amazing what we find that we re- resist individually. And then once we kind of question that motive, we realize that they're usually very, maybe they're built, but it could be based on past trauma or a past un- un- yeah. un- unknown fear. Um, for me, like I, as a child was just terrified of 
turbulence in planes, right? Um, mm. And it was because I had a really bad experience at an amusement park when I was young and with those like droppy rides and I just hated the feeling of dropping. So it's, it's, always, related, oh, it's yeah. always related to the feeling of dropping, right? Wait, was it the spinny one where the floor fell out? No, it's it's actually at the Bush Gardens in Florida, that like log ride where you like oh, shoot love, down the... Yep, okay, yeah. yep. So... Yeah, no, I love Bush Gardens in Florida. Yeah, so so long story short, I was with my dad and my dad's boss, um, and I was like pretty fr- sketched out, and so my dad's boss would be a good idea. I'd be like, well, you should experience it so you're not afraid of it. Um, and so like I, I tried to run away, and he just grabbed me and put me in... The, the the log ride at like six or seven um even though it was Oof. like there was no safety restraints back then he's like i'll just hold on to you so you don't yeah. fall and i'm just like in oh, the fetal God. position down by my down by his legs and like we go over the small one first which is like 20 feet and i was terrified and there's one that's like 100 feet after that and i just i hated yeah. every single second of it and from that point onwards like on the trip home on the flight we hit some like I think we would consider like nowadays moderate turbulence, like nothing terrible, like no, like dropping out of the sky. Um, and I freaked out. Like I just, I just completely freaked out. And then it was, I was with that for a while that I kind of held on to that. And even nowadays, someone that takes a hundred plus flights a year, like I'm always on a plane. And sometimes mm-hmm. if I'm, I've learned it's all related to what's going on around me. Like if, if I am unsure or in an anxious state, it'll come out of nowhere. But if like I'm confident yeah. in my path, and confident what's happening, it doesn't even phase me. It's amazing how those old kind of fears and traumas will will propagate, right? Because um, you never you never f- fully move on from those. You just learn how to how learn how to direct those thoughts in your head, right? Yeah, yeah. And for for me, uh, a lot of the the kind of directing is has is is the idea of letting go. Mm. It's and it's, it's really that idea of do I have control? No. no? Okay, then I'm not going to worry. It's not worth the cortisol. Yeah. <laughs> but that that would that's not, admittedly yeah. a learned response, and I de- developed that one while uh, on the death road in uh, Kenya. Oh, so the death road is the at least that's what they called it when I was there. It's the highway from Mombasa to uh, Nairobi, mm-hmm. um, and it's a road. It's technically two lanes most of the time, except for the fact that half the time one of those lanes is not usable yeah. and yet semis are still driving down it barreling at speed yeah and and all of a sudden like so by the third time we missed another vehicle going eight like 60 or 70 bike inches yeah. i just i was like i i, I just had to let yeah. go because i was like this is i this isn't i can't do this i can't be stressed by this sure. so i just was like all right yeah and and I, that's that that experience really was was powerful because it gave me that gift mm-hmm. of, of being like enjoy okay, it or ignore do it. i have control yeah Exactly. It's like, it's, and, and really kind of recognizing, do I have control? It's, is this something I actually have control over? And the reality mm-hmm. is almost always no. Yeah. Because then, and then you get back in and then it's, and then, and in some ways that in and of itself is kind of a reflection of like the, uh, the Stoic philosophers, like the real Stoics, not like this whole yeah. modern construct of Stoicism as, oh, unemotional and whatever. No, yeah. no that's not what the Stoics are about. Yeah. But and, as you know, Marcus like, Aurelius, the idea that, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, yep. uh, Seneca, mm-hmm. like this this idea of Seneca's my favorite. That we don't control what happens. Correct. Yeah, I I, I often lean into Epictetus myself, but mm. uh, this idea that we don't control what happens. Yeah, but we do have the power to control how we respond to what happens. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of like modern entrepreneur fuckboy types have really kind of. Uh, stolen the tenets of stoicism and made it into this like modern mantra yeah. of like the the what used to be like the finance investor boy douche you know 
Um, it's really kind of sad, but also the thing is, is like you, you hear them talk about it, write about it. It's like, oh, you actually don't understand what stoicism is. You just think it's like right. being cool and stone faced. As soon as you see someone like Andrew Tate mention stoicism, you're like, this guy does not know what he's talking about. You're like, oh, fuck. Oh, <laughs> we're all screwed. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's, <laughs> I mean, for, for me, one of the, uh, one of the modern uh, presentations of stoicism that I found has found really, really resonated with me. And maybe, maybe it's being Jewish, but mm. it was, uh, uh, Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning, hmm. which basically re- relates his experience of being in Auschwitz and surviving. You know, that book has been... And uh, and, and kind of what he... Yeah. Oh, sorry. You you cut out on the uh, internet, so I, oh. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, but I just say that, oh, that that book's been like uh, recommended to me so many times, and it's been on my list to read for... You know, everyone has that like rolling list of books to read, but I'm just going to... I Oh, I've, I've, I've got a stack of 60 books in my living room. Yes, because because my role like I because I just go on bookshop.org anytime someone recommends something mm-hmm. and order it and I'm like I'll get to it. I do the same. I said to my and sometimes like five years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but and but okay, but so and so what he it was about is like he was really explaining was like why did I survive? Why did it, and others didn't? Mm. Um, and it and it really came down to the ability to have an internalized sense of of purpose and sense of and sense wow. of worth and value and this something something that the Nazis couldn't strip from him. Because if you're like if all if all if your sense of self is tied to what you do for work, mm-hmm. well, if you can't work anymore, who are you? Who are you? Yeah, you're no what one. Are you? Yeah, or are no, you anything? No, but I, I think are you is the question. Not you're not, or are you? Are, yeah, right. Um, hmm. And and so that idea of like having that that internal sense of of purpose and worth and like and and what is what is your reason for existing? Uh, because if it's an external source, anything external can be taken away. Yeah. And if you're left with, and if you're left without a sense mm. of why you exist, well, then you're not going to for very long. Agreed. Sorry. I'm just like, this, this, this is, this is coming at a good time for me. Cause I've been thinking about a lot of these things myself recently about, you know, who, who I am and what I want to leave behind as a legacy, but also what I want to work on. Right. Cause I, I think that, yeah, you know, it's one thing to make money and be happy. And I'm not saying those two things are related. I'm just saying that like be, making money is the modern trope that we all kind of think brings happiness, but usually it doesn't. Because um, look, I'm sure you have- I think scientific studies yeah. show beyond about $100,000 a year. 183. You have- Yeah. Yeah, it's not like, yeah exactly. You start, you start getting In this country. returns. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> In this country. Right. Like if, if right. You, if yeah. you that's improved, obviously a rel- relative yeah. number. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, much lower. Um, but yeah. Well, and, and for me, and this is- Something that I I real I was lucky to realize. I don't even remember when I did, but my like my, my like my sense of purpose is that I want the world to be just, even just a little bit better mm-hmm. for my having been a part of it. Yeah. As long and as long as I I feel I'm living into that mm-hmm. and I'm in, and I'm continuing to be able to take care of myself and take care of my family, yeah. the money and the and the things are second. They're secondary, like yeah, tertiary. It's like my idea of a career is I'm going to keep doing things that feed my soul. Yeah. Until I find the thing I love, and mm-hmm. I'm okay if I never find that one thing. Yeah. So, so to kind of transition into that um, whole topic, and there's just so much we can talk about. I, I want so the people that don't know who you are, how would you describe the work you do now to your eight year old self? Ooh. Ooh. Well, I mean, you have to consider consider my eight year old self was 
arguably even more precocious. <laughs> it was incredibly precocious. And so you really I precocious? I, no, couldn't be. I know. Couldn't shocking. Be Cause I, I think that was about the age when I fell in love with 3d printing. Oh yeah. Cause that's when I realized that Star Trek replicators were just like atomic level or molecular <laughs> level added manufacturing yeah. with energy modulation. Yeah. Um, but so yes, I, 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 to, but if I was describe what I do very simply, um, I mean, it depends which of the things I do. How do I put a, I try to, I try to make the world better for everyone. Mm. That's that, that, that's the high level, yeah. but what that looks like has, there's many facets. Uh, one of them mm -hmm. is, is my work as a co as the, one of the co-founders of mighty buildings, uh, previously chief sustainability officer and now serving in more of an advisory role. Mm -hmm. Um, but what we do is we've developed a unique, uh, concrete free 3d printing technology to print panelized buildings. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to address how to figure out how do we leverage new technologies and new materials to unlock productivity and construction to address the housing crisis while also addressing the climate crisis, given that 40% of all global emissions are tied to the built environment. Mm -hmm. So we're currently building the world's first 3D printed zero net energy community in Southern California outside Desert Hot, in Desert Hot mm -hmm. Springs. Uh, we've got another project underway that's going to be kicking off down there. And we've got a few others and look they're moving towards starting in uh, various spots around the world. Um, and so one of the things that's unique about us is, as I said, we're unlike a lot of the 3D printed buildings that people are seeing, we're not using concrete. Yeah. Uh, we're using a uh, UV curable thermoset composite with continuous fiber reinforcement. Uh, so it's we get to be able to be as just as strong as concrete in terms of compressive strength, even better in terms of flexural tensile. So that mm -hmm. kind of ability to take shaking. Um, or to get hit with a two by four, yeah. which is how you test it. Yeah. And it's fun watching them bounce. That's um, cool. But being significantly significantly lighter. Mm -hmm. um, and so we deploy them as as a panelized kit of parts that we can then bring together in various floor plans mm. um, and, and configurations and typologies. We started with backyard apartments, what are called accessory dwelling mm -hmm. units. ADUs. Um, and ADUs, exactly. And more and doing we're selling those directly to homeowners. Mm -hmm. And then as the beginning of last year, we finally made our long plan transition into working with builders and developers to deploy uh, communities at scale. Yeah. And so now it's about, well, what's it look like to leverage the fact that we're doing communities at scale? Like, what's that mean for the ability to look at the infrastructure? How do we optimize that for min minimal environmental impacts? How do we cr uh, provide amenities that create community, allow people to come together? Mm -hmm. How like So all sorts of really exciting possibilities moving towards uh, hopefully this year being able to deploy multifamily uh, housing for the first time in, in the form of townhouses with a vision of eventually being able to do low to mid-rise apartment buildings. Yeah, that's amazing. And at the end of the day, we've, we've also, we're also striving to be carbon neutral without purchased offsets. Mm -hmm. so Which is huge. We're trying, so no, yeah, so yeah. not only are we addressing the embodied, car the operational carbon, so the carbon that's generated from the use of the building through the making sure our buildings are incredibly energy efficient mm -hmm. to reduce the size of the renewable energy systems and storage needed to to make sure that there's zero, uh, zero net energy. Mm -hmm. But also, how do we begin to address that embodied carbon, the carbon that actually goes into the, the creation of the buildings? Yeah. And so that's that's the next next kind of frontier. So we're, we're actively moving down that pathway mm -hmm. um, and on track to be there by the end of the decade um, and potentially much, much sooner, uh, depending on... Uh, how a couple of research paths uh, yeah. uh, work out. Um, but beyond that, one of the reasons I stepped back into an advisory role was to actually work on policy. Yeah. So there was a bill uh, that I that came about because a legislator's chief of staff asked me what I was thinking about. <laughs> um, 
So uh, Assembly Member Holden, uh, who's the representative uh, Assembly Member for Pasadena here in California, his chief of staff had visited us back in summer 2021. And he was, because uh, they were interested, they'd heard about what we were doing because we had one of our demo units in, down there yeah. um, and we're using us to sell ADUs to, in LA. And so they were interested if there might be some possibility to work together and potentially use what we were doing to, to build some affordable housing. Uh, fortunately, we're still, our cost structures aren't at scale yet. So we're we're not quite not playing right at that level yeah. yet, but, but we're, we're moving there. Yeah. We're, our goal is to be market agnostic. Um, but so I gave him a tour. It was great. And he, he, as I said, he, he asked me what, what, what was I thinking? Like what I was thinking about. Yeah. And this is about two months after the, it had come out that Tesla was finally profitable mm-hmm. without the sale of carbon credits on the low carbon, yeah. from the low carbon fuel standard, which is the reason they were profitable prior to yeah. Q2 21. Quote unquote profitable. <laughs> profitable. Yeah. Right. Well, and then you also, I, that, I, to be fair, I think that profitability probably still included Bitcoin sure. too. So yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, there's a yeah. whole conversation to be had about. They the, sold yeah, it all exactly. at, at near 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 peak, which is most of it. No, they still hold. They still hold significant. Okay, there. It's a part of their carbon. It's yeah. We can we like yeah. we we could, might have to have a whole other Let's interview do it, to yeah. talk about we'll Tesla and person. why they're not actually a sustainable company. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> and why cryptocurrency but anyway, is not even so, really sustainable? <laughs> and right. that sustainability um, is real. Sorry, I don't want to try to trigger you right now. Oh well, <laughs> well yes. Well, if you're if you're interested in why sustainability is dumb, read Halcyon article. Uh, version two coming out. Yeah, March. that was a great plug. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do what Thanks. I can. Uh, but but so yeah, so I had been thinking about well, what would it look like to create a low carbon housing standard? Yeah, like what would it look like to begin? Because and for those part of my background is I'm a sustainability like I'm professional. Yeah. I have a dual MBA MPA in sustainable management from Presidio Graduate School, mm-hmm. which is one of the first programs in the world to center the entire curriculum around systems thinking, sustain and sustainability. Yeah. And that sustainability as the balance of people, plan, and profit mm-hmm. while maximizing positive impact. Yeah. So, so I always think about how well, how do we move forward? How do we create new ways? What's to next? Things? What are ways? Right. And and then under and that MPA is public administration. Got it. So public as well as business. And my undergrad was poli sci econ double, and I thought so. I've been in love with politics and the and government for years. You definitely are a Vassar kid. I, I can see it. Like it's it's, it's oh like, yeah yeah it's definitely deep, a Vassar deep kid. Deep in trenches. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yes. No, it's, it's fine. Like hey, critical race. And my my poli sci advisor was one of the fathers of critical race theory. Yeah. So that's that's a whole facet of it as it well. Fascinating. Um, but it was really. But I was we understood how the great advances that California has already made mm-hmm. in terms of operational carbon because of our energy efficiency code because of the greening of our electrical grid, but that there, no one had really taken the next step to start working on the embodied carbon. Yeah. And the reality is in places like California, mm-hmm. if you're building a new house today, because of that energy efficiency, code, yeah. like title 24, mm-hmm. the energy code, because of the greening of the grid over the next 30 years, over f- roughly 50% of your impact is going to be from the upfront carbon, yeah. not from the energy use. So you've like, unless you're addressing that at the already, mm. you've already baked in 50% of your impact. And there's nothing you can do about it. So to people that don't know so, what embodied carbon is, do you want to give a quick explanation? Yeah. So embodied carbon is also called upfront carbon. So it's the carbon that's generated from the uh, the mining of the of the raw um, uh, materials that go into the, the building materials. Yeah. It's the um, energy. It's the carbon that's generated by the energy that goes into taking something from a raw material mm-hmm. into a, a finished good that you then install. Yeah. Um, so it's everything that you get before the building is like until the building is in use. Yeah. And so I was like, so yeah, I was like, well, it's funny you ask. When, oh, and, and so I was like, what if we did a low carbon housing standard? What if we uh, started to, to address embodied carbon in construction? 
And so what came out of that is we, we built an amazing coalition um, of, of a lot of people who don't necessarily come to the table together very often. And we're able to get AB 2446 uh, passed and signed into law last September. That's great. And so Congrats it's the that, first the bill in the country. Oh, thank you. Um, and so it's the first bill in the country to begin addressing that, that embodied. And that's California wide, correct? Or is it just? Okay. Yeah, California wide. And it's all uh, residential pr projects, five units or more and all commercial or all non-residential. So commercial, industrial, yeah. et cetera, 10,000 square feet. Starting being built so, when it was passed or is there a certain start date for? Uh, no. So it's so, yeah. So, and that's actually in process, uh, in process, but I Got believe currently 2027 is when the reductions, mandatory yeah. reductions go. Because they effect. have to give a but it few starts. years yeah. like build up, right? They can't just say tomorrow, like, oh, you have to change everything. Right. right. Well, yeah. that, that, that's part of it. Also, one of the things is we don't actually know how much carbon is going into our buildings. <laughs> yeah. There's like, there's a, like, so we, cause no one's really measuring it. Something like 3% of all building materials have what's called an environmental product declaration, which is a, a verified analysis of the carbon and other impacts of the material of, of the building material. And so we have, we've, we've been estimating, we've been using these industry estimates for years. Um, so, and many, many times they're multiple years old yeah. um, and they don't reflect current reality. So, so we actually start by requiring environmental product declarations for building materials mm. and then life cycle assessments for buildings. That's amazing. So life cycle yeah. assessment is where you met, kind of look at the life cycle of the building in, our, in order to understand its impacts. Mm -hmm. um, and then off of that, then we create a baseline. Yeah. Because part of it is like we, how, we can't have reductions if we don't know what we're reducing against. Mm. So we start by spending those first couple of years to, to, to collect that data, create a baseline, and then we have mandatory reductions. Yeah. When I first wrote the bill, it was 100% reduction by 2035. Mm. But in order, but I couldn't let perfection be the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to get it passed, and we had to did negotiate with various entities. And so it's currently 40% by 2035, which isn't, isn't where we need to no. be, but it's, but, it, but it's better than where we were. Correct. Um, and it gets us moving in the right direction. And there's a and the reality is like just getting people to start measuring it is going to have a huge impact. Yeah, or thinking about um, it, right? Like just 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 yeah. knowing it's there. Because I mean, I, I you're 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 actually like beginning to get my my brain gears turning and thinking about this because like I think just to people that are still confused why Sam and I are so excited about this idea, like it, th this is really everything to understand how much effort and energy and use goes into getting a specific material allows us to start to determine how we can reconfigure our entire system to be better for future generations. And for people that might say anything like, uh, Oh, we should be focusing on homelessness or food security or racial issues. It's like, this is all related to that. Like if, if we can, Oh, it's all, it's connected. all connected. That's why I love housing. Yeah. This is why I love housing. housing. This is, is so, one of the so, why so important. Housing is one of the biggest levers we have to solve society's intractable mm -hmm. problems. Everything from generational you want to wealth to okay, get someone in a house. Yeah. yeah. Sure. You, want to do, you want to begin to address addiction yeah. and, and, and mental health issues. Great. Get a roof over someone. You want to fix the racial uh, divide in, in wealth classes. You know, generational wealth is spread mostly through property, yeah. right? Like, yeah. Create, create pathways to ownership. It's huge. Uh, yeah. Like, and it's also, and, and also where, who gets, where do you get to them? Mm -hmm. And like, then they begin the history of redlining and the like, history of covenants and deeds, which for those who don't know, were tools used by um, planners, banks, and others in order to limit where people of color could purchase mm -hmm. homes. 
And there's a really to good the point where literally there are still some deeds on some of the houses here in Sausalito. That's crazy. They're unenforceable yeah. and they're being re- rewritten, but which say that this house cannot be sold to a person. That's crazy. You. There's a book that came out about this recently. I'm really forgetting the book. You might know. Uh, Color, of, Color law. of Law. Yeah. So that's 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 a book. I'll, so I link everything we talk about below in the show notes. Anyone still looking for links, just look nice. it up. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I did. It, I, it, I believe I have it. It's on its way. I think I or just... Uh, ordered a copy no, like I'd, I'd, some of my family told me about it recently over the holidays and I had heard of it before on some random podcast but base, if, if, I'm, if, if I'm not mistaken basically the book breaks down how very simple laws spearheaded by a bunch of incredibly racist people decades and decades ago have significantly impact the future prosperity of many marginalized races in the United States yeah yeah, um, yeah 100% um, but it also points to the impact that good policy can have yes because like, and that's where with AB twenty four forty six, it's really about how do we. The idea was, what's it look like to create guardrails for the market mm-hmm. to put, move it in the direction that society needs it to go. Yep. Yeah, there's. Uh, I don't know. It's just so fascinating. There's so many different kind of tendentials one can go. So I'm actually really curious. So you, I actually didn't know that you transitioned out of uh, your previous role to this advisor role to focus on this. Is, is this something that you, you, yeah, well, you want to do for a while or is this? It, it was, it was a combination of things. Yeah. So, and so, yeah, I, I love policy. Mm-hmm. Like I really That's do apparent. think it's, it's a powerful tool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're actually starting to work on a follow-up bill to create uh, that would create an embodied carbon trading system. Mm, that's cool. So basically, a uh, a carbon trading mechanism to add additional enforcement and incentives to AB twenty four forty. So is that trading kind of in the way that like if there's a certain material that is incredibly um, high on the amount of embodied carbon it has, and there's a material that's incredibly low, they can kind of offset or no? Kind of. I mean, it's more like the idea of like, well, if I'm building an affordable development. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use, and I claim, and it's too, would be too expensive. So, well, basically it's saying if you meet the threshold, if you go exceed the threshold, you, you, you are able to sell credits. Got it. If you can't meet the threshold, you have to buy credits. Okay, that's cool. But what that can mean, mean, mean so kind of like the low carbon fuel standard, which yeah, had a 30% uh, EV threshold. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's why Tesla was able to make billions off is they would sell, they were 100% EV. So they were selling credits, through all yeah. the that 70% of credits to like Ford to all the other OEMs before, since they didn't have their own EVs and yep. low carbon products. And they're making time. hundreds of millions oh, of dollars a quarter doing this for people that aren't aware. Yeah. 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 Like millions. it literally was the primary driver of their profitability prior to Q2 2020. I don't think, I don't think with, no. with, I, I've, I'm a strong, I, I do believe that without these credits in the system, Tesla probably oh. would not exist. No, yeah. no, no certainly not. Yeah. I, I, I don't, yeah, or without the government loans, they took. It's always funny For when sure. you hear Elon talk about government, though. Uh, it's as if he never been. He hasn't benefited significantly. But that's from any any programs. wealthy person who's started a business. Like, so I have my own issues with Elon. I, you know, I have my own issues with Tesla. I, I am an ardent supporter of SpaceX and what they're trying to do. As someone from the aerospace yeah. background, like, there's a lot of good things being yes. done. But but the thing with, with, it, with uh, Elon, I just want to shake him and be like, if you just focused on the good things you already have going and improve those and worked on, because I think Tesla can be a sustainable company. Like it, it, it can oh, it yeah. can atone for its past, but it's not. Well, especially <laughs> given his vision of it as an energy company and not a car company. Yeah, he'll have to eventually. And It'll like be a reckoning that, if not. So yeah, um, but so but so with this carbon trading, the hope is that we can do things like allow an afford a, a project to be affordable while still being sustainable because you can offset the cost. Uh, and and this is also part of this is a bit of a fallacy mm. because 
it's something of a myth that you can't achieve carbon reductions without spending a lot more money. Yeah. Um, there's actually pathways to significant carbon reductions that are simple cost at cost parity yeah. or even cheaper. But there are some particularly newer materials that are more expensive. Mm-hmm. And, but so you can offset that through the sale of these credits. But they're expensive because of R and D offset, not because they're actually expensive to make or to, uh, find. Largely, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Um, but so it's, how do we, yeah. And so it's, how do we leverage again? I'm a, I, I, I like to call myself a free market socialist mm, I like um, that. insofar as I believe in the power of the free market, but I also believe that I, I as someone who's trained in economics, I recognize that a free market is impossible in reality yeah. because of market failures. Um, there's always going to be externalities of some sort. There's always going to be imperfect information and barriers to entry yeah. into competition, all these factors. And therefore it's the role of government to create some sort of approximation equal opportunity of a free market. Exactly, because yeah. I think equality of outcomes is stupid, yes. but equality of opportunity is is to be is to be uh, strove uh, is something we're striving. I'm glad you said that because I think that I've had that argument a lot, where it's like I think, you know, when someone says, "Yeah, I want equal outcome," I was like, "Do you really want equal outcome or equal opportunity?" Really? And, and and I'm just people are like, "No outcome." I was like, "Well, that's only enforceable through violence. Like, there's no other way yeah. you get equal outcome." If I gave everyone a thousand dollars and then said at the end of the year, like you all have to have the same amount of thing or the same thing, it would, it, you'd have to readjust everything. And that's only done through violence or power or. Yeah. And, and it also ignores <laughs> the reality of humanity, which is the diversity of our, of existence. Yeah. A lot of what I just. And the diversity of paths. A lot, a lot of what I just said is, is borrowed yeah. from, um, have you ever heard like, a guy talk to him to Val Ravikant? I don't, I don't know that I have. How do you spell it? Uh, N-A-V-A-L, like naval, like, but, but pronounced Naval, um, is Indian, uh, by, uh, by, by descent. But he, I, I've mentioned him, I think on more than half the podcast I've recorded only because there are very few people in my life, um, that I've, I've never met him, but that, that have had teachings or writings that have spoken to me so strongly. And he's interesting because he is someone that, got wealthy through creating AngelList, like the company platform that I'm sure you're oh, very nice. familiar with, yeah. with many buildings. Um, and he basically has moved on and focuses completely now on just angel investing himself, but also like he's a full, he's really a philosopher. Like he's most of the time like thinking and meditating and his writings and hearing him talk for two hours is like mind blowingly good. I'll, I'll link below one of my favorite podcasts with him and Tim Ferriss, but um, like he, there's a book called the, it's, it's short term is the Navalmanac. It's really the almanac of Naval Ravikant. And what it is, is it's a couple <laughs> people that loved, loved his writings. And they took literally, I think three podcasts and two, uh, like short form interviews and made this 300 page book condensing down, split up into healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, and all about those three different kind of assets. And it's all like literally one blurb and then some explanation about what he's trying to say and expanding on that. But literally like he's the kind of person that you could listen to a two hour podcast with him and it would take you a week to get through it because everything you're like, oh, that makes sense. Or hmm, let me think about that. You know, he's just, it's dense in the best way possible. Um, and I, I, I can't recommend him enough. I'm not going to call Ravkind, a guide to wealth and happiness. Yeah. Eric Jorgensen. Yeah. So it's, it's great. And also oh, there's this guy in there that I'm a big fan of named Jack Butcher. Um, I'm just going to write this. So I want, I'm going to add a Naval and Tim Ferriss podcast to the show notes, but there's a guy named, uh, Jack butcher who does these amazing illustrations and a lot of people have copied him. So I'm sure you've seen a copy of what he's done. Um, his, his name is visualize value, but basically he, he makes these super simplistic black on white or white on black, um, three, uh, 2d drawings or visualizations of like tenants or principles. 
and makes it so that it, anyone can kind of understand it. So his his Instagram is like visualized value. Or he's, he's Jack Butcher, spelt Butcher the way you think it is. But like basically the Naval book is uh, insights from Naval with some more feedback and background with illustrations to kind of show you exactly what they're talking about. And I just think it's like, I could, you could give it to a six-year-old and I think they would love it. You could give it to someone 80 and they'd learn something from it. Like it's, it's one of those books that awesome. I think is, and the best thing about it, it's available for free online. So anyone can go to Navalmanac and type it into Google and download a PDF for free. You can buy the Kindle version. You could buy the hardcover, but you can get, always get a free PDF. And he's big about this. He's like, look, like he's, he's, a, he's like you. He's like, I believe strongly in the free market. I wouldn't be where I am now without it, right? But he also understands that the system is very warped and that we have to work on creating as close to equal opportunity as we can, even though it's probably impossible to ever get perfectly there. But we can get a lot closer than we are now because we're not very close to it right now. You know, especially when it comes to individuals, in my mind, in terms of like, if we created a system of basic housing and basic food, basic access to technology, basic access to healthcare, and that, and if someone wanted to just live on the dole and live off the system, they could have a very simple life and that would be their choice. But people mm -hmm. that would love the opportunity to succeed, but don't, but need to make sure and spend most of their life making sure just the basic boxes are checked like they would then suddenly be given a huge leg up, right? 100%. Um, yeah, it's one of the reasons I'm a big fan of UBI. Yeah. Uh, universal basic income. And well, that also is then tied to the how one of what I, what I see is one of the f biggest failures of modern society, which has been the failure to democratize the benefits of technological advancement in turn and its impacts on productivity. Agreed. So with UBI question for you, do you think it should be only open to people under a certain income or should be open to everyone? No, everyone. everyone just whether they make 5 billion a year or they make $5 a year, they have the same amount of money. I, there was one point in college where I felt I, I thought it would be a great. Everyone should just get $500,000 a year. Yeah. I mean, inflation wise, that would, that would, you know, that would cause some problems probably. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the adjustment period would be, I mean, to begin, this was what, this was 20 years ago when I was in college. <laughs> yeah, for so. sure. But it's, but it's also, it's that idea of like, yeah, no, I think it should be everyone. I don't, I think, because think about it, like, just because you're wealthy or you have a really good paying job doesn't mean that, like, if you had income that you didn't need to be slaving, or not, that's that's bad. Well, yeah. <laughs> let me let me take that one back, that term back. I know that's, yeah, where you don't have to be in a situation where you're burning yourself out, where you're maybe working for a company that doesn't align with your values, yeah. all to get a paycheck. Mm -hmm. Like if you were freed from that requirement, you could do whatever you want. What might you do with your time? Yeah. What might you do for the world? What might you mm -hmm. do for humanity? Yeah. Um, and for me, a lot of it really comes back to like Buckminster Fuller. Yeah. And I, I always like there's a quote I always can never quite get it right, but from uh, back in the fifties, so we're talking like mm -hmm. seventy years, five years ago. He's one of my favorite people. Talk. Yeah. Oh, me too. Like talking, talking about we have technology such that one person can do do the job of ten thousand. Mm -hmm. We should be freeing the other 9,999 up to do the things that further humanity, arts, yeah. music, culture, science, research, like, and like the things that may or may, may not have economic value, be, have obvious economic value in our modern context, but which are still so rich in possibility and meaning and value mm -hmm. of their own. No, I mean, I, I could not agree more. Um, and something that I think bringing it back to Naval real fast is he talks about, you know, this impending technology, not impending, but technology, you know, gets more advanced every single day, right? And the more and more basic operations that we can automate or have solved by technology frees up more of the population to work on creative tasks, which as he believes is like, that is the, 
that is the echelon, so to speak. That is that is the the purpose of humanity. If all of us, as many of us as possible, could focus on solving creative problems, the things we care about, we would be so much more advanced as a species than if. Because but most of us and we'd be happy. and happier. But most of us right now just work on maintaining a system, right? Yeah, we 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 work. I mean, even and, and the crazy part is like even people who within the global society are top echelon in terms of earners. Yeah. Many times are working paycheck to paycheck. Yes. Because it's only one spend... life event away from. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's like, because we have such a consumption based focus, like we're, we're, we're trained to create, to create value, to consume, not to create value, to create value or to fulfill our sense of purpose or to, as I like to call it, feed our souls. Yeah. When to me, like, so like when I'm looking at jobs, like when I'm looking at things I want to do is like, my first question is, does it feed my soul? Mm. Um, and as I'm starting to do like some early stage investing, one of my first questions, like when I'm analyzing companies, like what social value is it creating? Yeah. Like economic returns, whatever, mm -hmm. like those can be figured out. But if you don't, if you're not, if there's not social value, I really don't care. Yeah. So, because <laughs> to me, it's not, not furthering humanity. It's not furthering, it's not serving the world. So I actually noticed that on your LinkedIn a while back that you, uh, I, I, is this, are, are you, did you join someone else's firm or are you doing this solo um, with your own funds? Um, so along, like it's a, there's a group of us like, so I'm one of the, the co-founders of this group. It's kind of, it's slowly becoming potentially an actual thing, uh, fun, yeah, but it's awesome. yeah, we're right now we're calling it a build tech angels. Mm -hmm. I like that. Cause we're, fo we're focusing on construction real estate technology. Mm -hmm. And so one of my core roles is kind of bring that sustainability focus and, uh, and, and advising into it. Cause we're at this point, we're not talking big checks, but we're talking people who are industry insiders who have incredible mm -hmm. networks or like me have specific expertise yeah. that can help firms kind of achieve their goals in terms of sustainability, yeah. in terms of various uh, efforts. But speaking as someone myself that is founded and is part of a few early stage companies and works with them a lot through my other company, you know, like uh, even a, a small check can mean the world to a new venture as you know very well, right? Like it doesn't yeah. need to be much, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's amazing how much, how, sorry, it's amazing how little a check can mean much of a difference. Right. And, and it's incredible, especially in a small company, like even $10,000 can well, do a lot. Oh, it can make a big difference, but more importantly than the check is, well, who, what can I like, Insight. if you can introduce them into, to someone who's going to potentially be, uh, uh, a customer, yeah, like for sure. if they're, or you can introduce someone who potentially can be a vendor who solves one of their core problems. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so a lot of times, like particularly early on the checks are important, but it's the non-monetary value that's even even more important. Yeah, agreed. Hmm. So I know we have a, a, a timeout uh, coming up. So I'm going to get you out of here on some rapid fire questions. Um, and you can answer these questions right. in as many or few words as you want. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'll start it with the most cliche of them, but I actually will look forward to answer this one, which is if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or your family, what problem would you try and solve? Ooh, I, what problem would I try and solve? It could be problems too, if you, if you want to split it up. I, I, I would use it to identify, uplift and amplify the thinking and abilities and processes of those who already understand what it means to thrive in scarcity. Ooh, that's amazing. So that's, that comes from the, a Lewis R. Gordon quote um, that actually is a subject line on um, my personal email, mm. 
Let's see if I can pull this up real quick. Yeah, go for uh, it. One second now. Because I because I it's too good to to butcher. No, yeah. So so basically what you're saying is that you want to focus on the people that have found a way to make no, something from nothing and give them more util, utility and resources to do that at a larger scale. And to so and to allow the rest of us to learn from yes. it. Because um, mm-hmm. we're moving because we have to realize because that's part of where we are where we are is that we feel we have to always have more. Mm. There's no such thing as enough. Yeah, it's more, more, more. Um, gimme, gimme. Yeah. So, so the quote that, that really inspired this is, could one imagine what proper social investments in the people who are resourceful enough to survive in the shacks of South Africa, the favelas of Brazil, the slums of India, and the ghettos of the United States could mean for the future of humankind? Yeah, that's intense. I love that. That's uh, Lewis R. Gordon, um, professor of uh, African uh, American Studies, I believe, at Brandeis, mm-hmm. or at least last time I Boston. looked it up. Um, but that's I, that's resonated with me ever since I, I read it when I was in grad school. and. And if I had a billion dollars, I'd use it. I'd create the non, a nonprofit that connects those, those types of individuals to leading universities, to business, like, and really just helps us kind of reimagine what it, what it would look like to, to live and basically to allow us to move away from this uh, consumption-based extractive way of living. Yeah, I love that. Um, is there a particular sound that you associate with happiness? Hmm. I think that's it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just that, that mm-hmm. sense of peace. Yeah. And like, and that, that feeling like when you just yeah, like, you feel full, just have that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, and that there's kind of resonance in the chest and mm-hmm. like, just everything's right. It's like, yeah, that's, 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 I think what I, what I associate with happiness. Hmm. I like that. I haven't gotten that. Usually people, Cause, usually, cause I think yeah. that's how I respond. For sure. Like, cause that's how, like when I know I'm happy is when mm-hmm. that just kind of comes out. Yeah. Is there, is there an external sound that you potentially identify with happiness? Something that's not good. Uh, children's laughter. laughter. Okay. Yeah. For me, it'll always be the sound. You know the sound when you pick up a box of Legos? It's like the mm-hmm. exact same noise every time. That to me is like, I, th- I don't think yep. anything. Every- it's also like uh, a lot of food-based ones too. Like uh, my grandma used to have this like old toaster oven that made this very distinct like bell. Like it definitely, it definitely was like hitting a bell mm-hmm. inside the old mm-hmm. machine and it had like that's such an, it was like an F sharp. It was like such a nice like ding. Um, and I always remember that cause like that would mean that some kind of food or yummy thing my grandma made me is coming out for me to eat, you know? Um, nice. oh, I love that. so, uh, is there a, a story that your family or parents like to tell about you? Um, let's see. Well, unfortunately, uh, let's see. I don't know. I mean, well, my mom was always fond of saying that if I survived adolescence, I'd make a great adult. Uh, to which I would respond, you mean if you didn't kill me first? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I was, I was not always the easiest of children. No. And, and, yeah. and Neither was I. Uh, yeah. yeah. My mom says something similar to me. She's like, she's like, if you ever make it through, this will be great. Like, what do you mean make it? Yeah, like, exactly. Thanks, mom. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I finally, like, I think I graduated college and I was like, see, I finally made it. She's like, you know that your college education is absolutely no bearing on whether or not you made it or not. And I was like, yeah, thanks for the reminder. <laughs> because <laughs> what she what she means and intends is, is about happiness it's not about like status or societal gain right yeah exactly talking about like have you re- are you are you happy no not yet okay cool keep working on that um <laughs> but like what even is happiness at the end of the day um to, to each define for themselves i believe uh 
so, so I'm not really entirely sure myself, and I think about this a lot. But uh, to bring up Naval again, people listen to this podcast must think that like I just I, I worship Naval like he is my god. But he's he's just genuinely someone that has just consumed so much data and figured out a nice way to summarize it. And I just like very clean summarizations, like summizations of things, summa- summations of things. Sorry, I'm slightly dyslexic. And um, yeah, all good. And. Uh, I, I don't know. I just, you know, when you find someone that you just think is like really has it figured out and is like, a, and, and I don't agree with everything he says. I agree with, you know, maybe half of it strongly. The other half I question, but sometimes I let it in. Sometimes I let it mm-hmm. out. But he talks about this idea of happiness being peace and motion, which I really like. Um, you know, this idea that like, regardless of what's going on, you still can find this inner level of peace and have this, that kind of grounds you, which I, I do like um, from a conceptual point. Right. Um, if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, where would it be? And what would it say? Single push notification. Hmm. So like a a, a combined geographic area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you want to say the whole world, that's fine. If you want to say, you know, your next door neighbor, also fine. You know, like there's no rules. Is, Is this push notification allowed to be, a virus that turns their phones off? Uh, sure. Okay, then that's what I'm doing, and I'm shutting everyone's phone off. Well, uh, but then that... But what about emergencies? Would, yeah, I know. I, know. I would say... Because we've become so reliant yeah. on it. I mean, it also could be like... I, I like the idea and kind of going off that, like, every phone, Android, iPhone, whatever, has some kind of mode where, you know, it might shut down internal processes, but still allows for emergency calls. And I think that that might be a, right. It like goes like automatically puts in do not disturb. Yeah, but like you can't do anything but call nine one one, you know, or take a call from your mom, yeah. you know. And that's and that's. Uh, I think that's the mode that I would probably send. Because I think yeah, we've just become way too mm-hmm. reliant and engaged. Yeah, with our phones and their. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's. I don't I don't think it's necessarily healthy for humanity to be always staring at a screen. Absolutely, and to have, or to even have that much information at the touch of our hands. That's one thing. I appreciate I appreciate mm-hmm. it, but I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing. Yeah, and the ability to respond immediately to anyone anywhere mm-hmm. because they're on the internet and they're wrong. Yeah, nothing nothing I say more than this causes more backlash. Um, not me not drinking coffee. The the thing I say that makes people go absolutely batshit insane is the fact that I don't listen to or read the news and deleted all news apps from my phone because I just genuinely believe that human beings are not capable of hearing the worst fucking thing happening every single second of the day. Right. I just don't believe it. And I, I'm, I'm jealous of that. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I try at times to do that, but then it's, it's human the fact nature. that I'm an information junkie yeah. comes back. Like, yeah, but no, I've gotten much better. Like at, at putting music on instead of uh, BBC world service mm. when I'm taking showers. So, so my, my rule is simple. I know I'm still going to look up stuff cause I love information. I love learning more. Right. But I at least, don't make it easy. So I, I need to Google it and I need it to be something that I need to query properly. I don't let the, I don't let it just come to me and then distract me. It's like, I want to learn more about this. And then I go down that rabbit hole, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. And for me, it's, I still, uh, yeah, I, I just like to, it's, it's, well, part of it's like, cause that, I like the flow of information because that's how my brain makes weird connections that I'm, that I might not see otherwise yeah. is because I hear about some random story about something going on in like, I don't know, Mozambique that inspires me to think, well, if they're doing that there, what can I do? How could you sure. see, or what might it look like? Sure. Cause my brain's like all about like, it's, it's yeah those connections and like, 
and and it and it's so a lot it's like an ai but it has to have a good the right database mm-hmm. but that's what i but want yeah, but the existential dread yeah. the existential dread is, is is real yeah that's what i want twitter to be like if i if, if i if i was in charge of twitter that's what i would focus twitter on right it's like this idea that i think information is good when used properly in the right context and i think that is the vessel for what i'd want twitter to become right not just like and 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 the, to some point it's, it is that and to many points it's not that you know um because you have the best of both worlds in in that regard right um yeah agreed but we'll see what happens we'll see um i'll get you out of here on this question which is um assuming one day you might have grandchildren or maybe it's like uh siblings younger kids or anything like that do you have any advice for future generations some some you know maybe think 40 years from now what advice would you want to give to the youngest generation don't forget to look up Hmm. that's like because one of the things that like well it's, it's like there's a whole host of that but it's like it's like don't forget to look up Try to have one moment of childlike wonderment and awe every day. And don't take life too seriously. Yeah. And and the don't look up thing. That, that came from just because, I, and I don't know if it's my ADD or, or whatever it is, but I, I'm always, like, I've always been the type of person that, like, I'm kind of always looking around. And I always, like, and I love it when I'm, particularly, like, when I'm walking through a city or something. And I look up and there's just, you see, like, a random window that's just got some something in it. It's just, like... And it just like makes you laugh or you're like walking through a forest, you look up and just all of a sudden you see the most spectacular bird. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, it's like, and, and it's, or, and I think this is really where, where it comes from is the stars yeah. and the possibilities of the stars. Yeah. Seeing something bigger than yourself, you know, reminding you that you were this tiny speck on this tiny planet and a gigantic universe as, or as we think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right or we're simulation and we're all in a uh, not even like in something that's we would consider the size of a microchip who knows yeah that'd be cool or it's like the grinch we're all in a snowflake you know who knows yeah or like uh men in black we're all just uh marbles on a uh, uh sun on a uh, cat's uh i love that 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 is that is a fun uh trope well um sam thank you so much for the time today um do you have anything you'd like to oh, thanks for having me rob this oh, is this is fun uh, anything you'd like to plug or share or, or have people go and spend more time looking at um well if anyone's interested in learning more about mighty buildings mm-hmm. uh it's www.mightybuildings.com just keep it simple i appreciate uh, particularly that. if you're a builder builder or developer yeah. uh we would love to hear from you we're always looking for for the right partners uh because our vision really is is focusing on areas where we have uh, mission aligned individual uh, partners and uh, longer term, our whole we're actually planning on having like a distributed network of micro factories mm-hmm. uh, in those areas. So that and yeah, uh, and, and if you're interested in Presidio, it's just uh, PG, uh, presidio.edu. Mm-hmm. Um, though the school is merging with the uh, University of the Redlands because of the current lands, uh, higher education landscape, uh, just makes it necessary. But it's a great partnership, and, and it's in really the Presidio, for, for right? Like, I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, well, so, no, oh, no. Good. So actually. Hybrid residency system. So we were only in class four days a month. So we, oh. we never had a permanent campus. Wow. We would, uh, so we used uh, the SF State Extension at the Westwood Mall for a mm-hmm. while. We used uh, Alliant University over by Fisherman's Wharf for a while. Uh, we were in Oakland for, like, we've been all over the place. But with the merger with the University of Redlands, we'll actually be able to take advantage of their permanent campus here in Marin. Wow. But we did always have our academic offices in the Presidio, at least 
the entire time I was yeah, there. For, for, yeah. So we maintain, did maintain that connection. For any for anyone that hasn't been to Presidio, uh, just south of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge in uh, the Bay Area, I highly recommend it. It is uh, beautiful. That that whole tract of land. I mean, Ma- I mean, where you live in Marin, like, is probably the place I'll end up living someday because I just I can't find many places that are as close to nature and good good community as are close to a major city and airport. So. Yeah, and I, I consider myself really lucky. I landed in Sausalito when I first moved to California That's in '06. Nice. Uh, some friends got me a job as a beer buyer at the uh, what was then the Real Food Company mm-hmm. here in town, just a high natural food store. Uh, so it was easy to make it when I finished grad school to to make the move back up, particularly because my first job after grad school was doing brand strategy work up in Nevada. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, the outro will include all your other contact information where people can find you, but um, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Awesome. Uh, you as well, sir. Um, really appreciate the, the opportunity. This is fun. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation between myself and Sam Rubin. You can find Sam Rubin online by Googling his name, Sam Rubin, spelled R-U-B-E-N. And as always, you can find me online at Rob Auchincloss or robauchincloss.com or robislost.com. There are actually a few URLs just all point to the same place, but I'm going to stop talking now.